Well, we're going to continue our series and our look at the, uh, the parables of Jesus. And we have been spending our time so far in this look and walk through the parables in Matthew 13. I'll describe most of the parables we're looking at as B-side parables. They're not the, the Good Samaritan or the prodigal parable, the prodigal son, but a lot of parables that um, you may not be as familiar with. In large part because most of the parables, the topic in which Jesus is talking about is what's called the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, it's actually the topic, the theme that Jesus preached on and taught about more than any other thing and and during his time on earth, and yet it is a topic that we talk about very little. We are in an individualistic society. We like to individualize and make things all about us, and yet the gospel of the kingdom is something far greater than simply just a making us okay. It is about the whole world and about bringing Christ's kingship to bear upon this world. And we come to uh, another parable that we'll talk about the kingdom of heaven this morning. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 13, verses 31 through 33. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, you can turn there and follow along with me as I read out loud. If you don't have a Bible, it's okay. It'll be up on the, the screen for you where you can follow along. Matthew 13, verses 31 through 33, we're going to be looking at two parables or two metaphors that go back to back. They're talking about the same thing this morning. Hear God's word. And Jesus, he put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. And he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. This ends the reading of God's holy inerrance and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but may the word of our God stand forever. Well, let me give you a review since I was gone last week uh, on where we have been so far in Matthew 13 in the series of parables that do build and actually uh, correlate with one another. Where we have been is Jesus' teaching about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And the first little bit, one of the more famous parables that we'll look at in this series is where he began. He told a parable and 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 gave an explanation of what is known as the parable of the sower, of the four different soils that hear the gospel of the kingdom and how they respond. And there's some good news there in that there is one soil that responds and is wonderfully fruitful in response to the gospel of the kingdom. But there is also some distressing news, isn't there? Three quarters of the soil will have no response, will not, will not have a, a saving response, a response that receives the truth of the kingdom of God and embraces it and builds fruit upon what happens in their hearts. Then we see in the second parable, it's called the parable of the wheat in tares or the wheat in weeds. We learn that in this world, the sons of the kingdom of God will continue to live in a world surrounded by an enemy kingdom. 
that in the field, the world that God is going to plant the sons of the kingdom, and yet we'll be surrounded by those who are anti-God and his kingdom, anti the sons of the kingdom. And not only that, we only will be surrounded by an evil world that is, that is for an evil kingdom, but indeed that kingdom, that evil kingdom will infiltrate the church from time to time and show itself up within God's people. And therefore, there are some realities that when Jesus says, I have come and my, my kingdom has come, that I brought it to bear and inaugurated in this world, that there are some realities that we face until Jesus comes back again that are difficult to swallow. And indeed, that is how we often feel, right? We feel poignantly the reality of being wheat in a weedy world, of being sons of the kingdom and surrounded by the evil kingdom of the evil one who would seek to destroy us. We look around us and we say the church is weak. Its people are, are fighting for nutrients with the weeds of this world. The world is full of evil. The evil one infiltrates our churches with those who will betray us and disrupt our bodies. There are those, the sons of the lives of the sons of the kingdom are full of challenges, and we feel surrounded by an evil world and an encroachment of an evil culture in a tepid church. This is what we're experiencing. And all our attempts, all our attempts to fight back against this world and against this evil kingdom, all of our ministries, all of our good works, all of our evangelistic and missionary activities and efforts, all of our sacrifices to seek justice, all of our attempts to get educated and to have answers to the newest challenges to our faith, they just all seem so small, so small, so puny. We wonder if we are doing anything. We wonder if our labors are bearing any fruit and amounting to any change in this world. But then, in a parable that we come to today, a parable that is indeed surrounded in the, in the literature of Matthew 13. We see the parable of the wheat and the weeds, and then we have the parable of the mustard seed and the leaven, and then we have the explanation of the parable of the wheat and weeds. Smack dab in the middle of a parable that is going to tell us that we're going to be surrounded in this world, we get some really good news. Jesus says, you're going to be surrounded and then with a smile, it begins to talk about a mustard seed and about yeast. Two words this morning, two, two words this morning in these parables that should be of incredible encouragement in, that, in regarding to the power of the kingdom of God for a people who are surrounded by an evil kingdom. That is you and me. That is the church. We're surrounded by an evil kingdom, and yet there is power in the kingdom that God has given us. Two words this morning from these parables. The first is this. The first is this, is that the kingdom, the kingdom of God has surprising power, has surprising power. Jesus, in between of telling us about the wheat and the weeds and providing the explanation to his disciples that in this world will be, there will be a competing kingdom that there will surround us and infiltrate us, Jesus provides a parable that I would assume, I would, I would think that he almost has a smile on his face as he tells it. He gives these back-to-back -back parables, these metaphors that describe the beginning and end of the work of the kingdom as small and hidden. Small and hidden. He begins and says, it's a mustard seed. It's the smallest of all the seeds. Now, that's not necessarily from a botanical description of all the worlds, 
That's not necessarily true, but he's talking to a specific audience, right? That would be like, you know, talking to somebody about a Kindle when you, in, in Old Testament times, they simply wouldn't understand it. He's talking to them as to what they would understand to be the smallest of all seeds, and that is the mustard seeds. And then he talks about yeast, yeast which is hidden. It's almost as if Jesus is telling the disciples and tells us that the realities of the world are that we as wheat will be surrounded by an enemy kingdom, and the disciples like us, we hear that and we're distressed by it. We're weary and worn out by it about the realities of the world that we live in. And then it's like Jesus goes, well, it's actually you being surrounded is just how I like it. It's just how I intended it. And in fact, I have the enemy just where I wanted him, surrounding us. There was a great quote from uh, one of the accounts of World War II from a soldiers in a particular book about uh, Pennsylvania soldiers who fought, and it was actually a quote that was taken from that book that was inserted into the miniseries Band of Brothers. And it was in one of the scenes there, and, and the midst of uh, the Nazi massive attack and what came to be known as the Battle of the Bulge, the Third Army had been shredded, and they were in desperate retreat. And, and the, the 82nd Airborne was called upon to go in and to insert themselves and try to stop the Nazi advance. And the scene unfolds in the, the, this, this, the story of the miniseries Band of Brothers this way, that mile after mile of men from the Third Army are stumbling yet racing as fast as they can to get away in retreat. But the men of the 82nd Airborne are going the exact opposite direction into the fights. And in one, in one particular moment, in the midst of the melee and the desperation, a lieutenant from the 3rd Army says to a captain in the 82nd Airborne, if you go in that direction, you're going to be surrounded. And the captain looked at him and said, Lieutenant, we are paratroopers. We're supposed to be surrounded. And in this parable, it's almost as if Jesus looks at his disciples with a smile and says, guys, you're the sons of the kingdom. You're supposed to be surrounded. You're supposed to be surrounded. The parable of the mustard seed and the parable of yeast gives us one side of the principle of the kingdom, which is this, that power is seen in the small beginnings, but as we're going to look at in the second half of our time this morning, but it has enormous effects. The kingdom came. In Jesus' first advent and coming into this world, Jesus inaugurated his kingdom. It would be like the beachhead being taken on D-Day. There was an arrival of King Jesus and his kingdom in this world, but it looks radically different than we imagined it. We thought he was going to come with pomp and circumstance. And yet Jesus says, my kingdom comes like a mustard seed. So what is he saying? That the kingdom of God begins small. The birth of Jesus is small. Even the message of the angels, which is the most kind of pomp and circumstance moment of the whole nativity and advent of the story, they go to a dark field into the lowest of societal figures, separated from the society. There is no trumpet announcing to the world or announcing his coming. He was not sent to a royal crib of influence. God buried the mustard seed in Mary's womb for nine months. The kingdom of God comes small. Jesus is raised in a rejected part of Israel. Even his disciples knew it. What good can come from Nazareth? Jesus wasn't trained in the halls of power. He was of humble origin. He had a confusing ministry above that. He said, follow me, and I'll make you great. No, follow me, and you won't have a bed, 
and your parents will hate you and your children will reject you. Jesus was on the outs with the Jewish leaders. No one seemed, the, 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 the positive and the, the core part of society, Israelite society, rejected him. And oh, and look at who Jesus' followers are. Is it the great men of Israel? No, it's a group of ignoramuses. Followed them by tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners. This is the kingdom come. It starts small. And boy, does it get worse. It gets worse because Jesus eventually, in his kingdom, to bring his kingdom to bear, he is completely rejected. He is scourged. He is nailed to a cross with a sign that mockingly says, here is the king of the Jews. Here is the king of the Jews. The beginning of the kingdom is not just small, but it's ugly. It's ugly. Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 3 said this, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of a dry ground. A root out of a dry ground is a, is a root that is not very strong. For he grew up before him like a root with a dry gown. He had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. The coming of the kingdom of God. The kingdom starts from a lowly and despised place. And in fact, this is the continuation. This is how it continues to grow. In the book of Acts, which you looked at much last year, when the gospel goes out to other places, what does it say? They go to the Met and they say, we have the message of a celebrated Jew who died on a cross. And 1 Corinthians says, this, this, the gospel is foolishness to the Gentile. In fact, one of the oldest sketches of the crucifixion that we have in, in, in antiquity can be found in a museum, and it's the picture of a guy on a cross with the head of a donkey. And at, at the foot of the cross is a Roman soldier bowing down in worship to this man on the cross with a donkey head, and in a mockery, it inscribes, it's inscribed this way, Alexa Menos Sebatai Theos, or translated, Alexa Menos worships his gods. It's mocking the gospel. That you, you mock a man who dies on a cross. What a donkey. It's foolishness. It's small. It's ugly. Not only is it small and despised, but the work of the kingdom, as we see in the second parable, yeast hidden in dough. It's hidden. The work of the kingdom is hidden the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, and it's like yeast and bread. It says that the, the woman in that parable took yeast or yeast and hid it into the dough. The Greek word there is the word encrypto, from which we get the word encrypted. The work of the kingdom is a mystery, a hidden mystery. It is done in the dark places and the whispering places of this world. You see, it is ultimately a spiritual kingdom. It is hid from our eyes. Oh, it takes visible effects, and we'll see that later on. But the work itself is hidden, and therefore it is a mystery to us. Jesus says in John chapter 3 that the wind blows where it wishes. So is everyone born of the Spirit. Anyone who is in Christ, the old is gone, and everything is new. It's an inside-out conquering by the kingdom. You don't see it. You see the effects of it, but you don't see the work often. It is a mystery and a wonder, isn't it, who God uses to bring his kingdom to bear in this world? Who God uses to go to the most hidden and horrific places of this world to spread the gospel? It is a mystery and a wonder who God saves. It's a mystery. 
It's a mystery and a wonder, the timing of God's salvation work. That someone can sit under the teaching of God's word and under the teaching of their parents for decades upon decades upon decades upon decades, and then all of a sudden, one day, boom, radical transformation. It's a mystery, the timing and the ways of God's kingdom work. The gospel in the early centuries of, the Christian, of Christianity would spread through the weak and the despised and the lowly. Yes, the gospel was most profoundly preached in the catacombs where the churches would meet in secret and the places where they had to meet underground in graveyards and they would simply whisper the gospel. The mystery, the hiddenness of the work of the kingdom. John, this is John Bunyan's testimony. At a time in England where it was not a good thing or a safe thing necessarily to be an evangelical Protestant, he was a tinker by trade and he went around sharpening knives and fixing pots and pans. And one day, as before he was a Christian, he was in somebody's kitchen doing some work fixing pots and pans when he overheard three or four servant women talking in the doorway. And here's what he heard them say. He, said, or he says this about this account. He said, it was only three to four poor women sitting in the doorway to a room, talking and whispering about the things of God. And later I thought they spoke as if joy had made them speak. They whispered the gospel, passing on the secrets in the corner of doorways and kitchens. And John Bunyan's life was radically transformed. It is the kingdom that comes in hiding. So here's the application for us on this first half. And it is an application that we so desperately need in the American church. Do not despise the small stuff. Do not despise small beginnings. We have a human tendency to think that if something is not immediately impressive, that it's really not that important. We tend to value the grand and the great in the large scale. We believe that bigger must be better and prettier must be holier. But it actually, that would be counter to the way Jesus communicates about his kingdom. Jesus comes with no armies, no impressive weaponry, no flags or banners, no soldiers. Just it's 12 guys and a rabbi sweating in Arabian sun, sweating flies from their face. And the kingdom of God has come. Be aware of being misled by what is immediately impressive. Don't underestimate hidden ministries in your own life. If we've been pushed to the corners and the ostracized to the outer places of culture, perhaps that's right where we're supposed to be. Maybe Jesus looks at us and says, yes, you're supposed to be surrounded. The hidden places of ministry, so much can be done there. Let me give you an example of it. Kingdom work in hiding. There was a B-17 bombing run over Germany during World War II, and during their bombing run, they were hit with anti-aircraft flak, by the anti-aircraft guns. And one of the, the, the crew members thought, uh, as, as they were hit by this, one of the, anti, the flak hit directly on their fuel tank. And normally if that happens, what happens? Engine explodes, plane explodes, everybody is dead. But nothing happens. And he thought, what gives? Well, they get back and they land and they begin to they go to retrieve the fuel tank out of, or the shell out of the fuel tank. And what they find there is there's not just one, fuel, one shell, but there's 11 unexploded shells within the, within the plane. There was a mystery as to why the shells, this many shells in particular, had not detonated and destroyed the fuel tank and the, subsequently the whole plane. So they sent the shells to intelligence to find out what was going on with these shells. And what they found is that all the shells were empty except for one of them. 
There was, no, there was no detonating device within them. But the one that was not empty, it actually had a rolled up small piece of paper within it. It was a scroll of writing in, a, in the Czech language. And so they had it translated for them. And they found that this little scrolled up piece of writing read this. This is all we can do for you now. You see, there were Czech labor prisoners who were being forced to work in Nazi munitions factories. And every once in a while, they would just decide not to put the detonation device in the bombs. The places of hiding. Now, that seems like a small thing in the grand scheme of World War II, but to those men and to their lives, it was radical stuff. It wasn't blatant or flashy, but to the lives of the men on that crew, it was salvation. The kingdom of God comes kind of like that. You see, for most of us, we did not come become Christians from grand and flashy concerts and when the great speakers stood up to speak, we became Christians because somebody down the hall in our dorm knocked on our door. Or because our mom and our dad, day in and day out, said, hey, we're gonna do family devotions. And you kicked and you pitched a fit and you made it miserable and they kept doing it. The hidden places, the small places. I think of the Haystack prayer meetings that happened in the early 1800s. In August 1806, one, one afternoon, a man named Samuel Mills and four other students at Williams College in Massachusetts were just talking and discussing about the things of God when suddenly there was a, there was, the skies opened up with thunder and a rainstorm and, in order, and a lightning storm and in order into, to, to get them to put themselves into a safe place where they won't get wet and where they would be out from the lightning, they hid in a barn underneath haystacks. And there, while they spent the time waiting for the storm to pass, they began to pray. And they began to particularly pray that God would open up the doors for there to be a missions movement that would reach the worlds. And they decided that was kind of a cool experience. And so they began to meet week in and week out to pray under the haystacks for God to develop a mission-sending movement. At this time, there was not a single foreign missions movement in America. And within the next couple months, they began a, a, a group called the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions. Their first missionary was a man named Adoniram Judson. Within the next 50 years, they would send out 1,200 missionaries. They would then start the American Bible Society, which would translate God's word into foreign languages. And ultimately, their work came to be known what is called the International Missions Board, or the IMB which is the Southern Baptist wing of missions, all born from where? The hiding place of a haystack. To me, this is great encouragement to every generation that God delights in humble beginnings. He delights in doing great things with small things. For those of you that are, that are younger and want to do great things, start small, find hiding places, and let the Lord lift you up. This tendency, especially for those of us that were called to be in a more public and vocational ministry, I remember being 23 and 24 year old, years old, and I was like, man, that's it. I want to be on the conference circuit. Get me there. Man, how foolish that would be for God to put 23 or 24 year olds on the lecture circuit. Start small. Start with the small things. It always seems that the kingdom of heaven seems unequal to the task. And this is why we need to hear from 1 Corinthians 15, 58, which says this, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always bounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor, your small, your hidden labor is not in vain. We need to be told that over and over and over again. 
Because it sure seems that our labor is in vain sometimes, doesn't it? Hebrews 12, 12 says this, Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Man, are we too weak for the job? Yes, but no. Because God uses small things. So the kingdom of God surprises us with how small it arrives and how hidden its work is. You know, it's not like you can go with the kingdom of God. Oh, there's the kingdom of God at work. I see it. It's over there. I, oh, it's there. Right there. Oh, touch it. <laughs> That's not how it works. But here's the thing. You may not know. It may be done in secret, but you know when it's been there. Like the pitter-patter of deer tracks through snow, you know when the kingdom of God has shown up. You can see the evidence of it, and this is the second point from these parables, this not only does God use, has a, a, a surprise power in his kingdom, he also has a kingdom that has advancing or unstoppable power. The principle and point of these two parables is the kingdom may appear small and its work may be hidden, but from these small and recognized places, the kingdom of heaven extends with worldwide power. It says this in verse 32, it says that the mustard seed grows in the largest of garden bushes, from the smallest of plants of seeds to the largest of bushes. And when the planted mustard seed becomes at its largest, it says the birds of the air will perch in the shade. We hear that in our modern ears and we just go, well, that's a nice little aesthetic. A nice twist to throw in at the end. Look, the birds found shade in the bushel tree. That's great. That's not what the Israelites heard. You see, they knew their Bibles. Now, remember that Jesus is speaking to a Jewish audience, and they understood that in the writer of Matthew's particular writing for a Jewish audience. And when they hear this, they're thinking about Ezekiel and Daniel, where it tells us multiple times that when God's kingdom comes in its fullness, that the, all the nations of the earth, like birds, will gather into God's tree. Ezekiel, for example, Ezekiel 17, verses 23 and 24, it says this, On the mountain height of Israel will I plant it, that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. Of course, Ezekiel, which is always using huge language, would use cedar. And under it, we will dwell every kind of bird. In the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest. In the Hebrew or Jewish vernacular, the birds of the air represented the Gentiles. It represented all the other nations of the earth. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that when the kingdom of God comes, it comes small, but it grows and becomes large, and it becomes the flocking place of all the nations of the earth. He is saying that the kingdom of God is not simply for Jews only. It is for every tribe and tongue and nation. This parable is saying that there is, a, there is such power in the seed of the kingdom that it will have such explosive growth such that it covers the whole earth and that it encompasses every tribe and tongue and people group. And therefore, that while the work of this kingdom usually remains quite small and quite hidden, the mark of its advancement can be traced across history and its march to the nations. Let me just show you very briefly. You see... The kingdom of God started with like these 12 dudes. One betrays Jesus, they add, they replace him. Then there's 120 people in the upper, upper room. That is less, by the way, that's less than half of the amount of people in this room right now. Less than half. And then within a few weeks, the Pentecost falls. 
3,000 were added, and then 5,000, and the church in Jerusalem grew and grew, and soon it became, went, went to the Gentiles and to the Gentile reasons. Then the gospel went to Asia Minor. Then we actually see the gospel retrace the steps of Alexander the Great and the legions of Rome, or they walk up the paths of the Roman Empire, moving towards Rome itself, and the gospel goes with them to Macedonia, to Corinth, to Thessalonica, and ultimately to Rome itself. So much so that by the time Paul is writing the book of Romans, he says, it is my ambition to preach where Christ has not yet been preached, and yet I am having trouble finding a place to do so. Forty years after the establishment of the kingdom of God, and then within two and a half centuries of the gospel, will have so permeated the Roman Empire that Constantine himself would declare himself to be a Christian. If you had asked Pontius Pilate when he put to death the king of the Jews what was going to happen in the next three centuries, and you had told him that this is what was going to happen, he would looked at you and he said, I don't just think you're crazy, I know you're crazy. But it didn't stop there, does it? The gospel and the kingdom of God continues to advance. It goes to the Norsemen, it goes to the Vikings, the gospel spreads. And everywhere it goes, it not only leaves a church, but it leaves physical remnants, cathedrals, chapels, artwork, theological writings, hospitals, changed societies, increased science, all because of the progress of the kingdom of God. That where the gospel grows, cultures get better. Where the gospel goes, the kingdom comes in all of its forms. God's peace and God's justice, there is a visible legacy that is left. The advancing power of the kingdom of God. Oh, and by the way, this parable indicates that out of the smallness and hiddenness, the advance of the kingdom of God is unstoppable. How can we know that? How can we know that? Well, because Jesus has used the idea of smallness and seed before to describe his kingdom coming. You see, this whole thing about smallness and hiddenness is not just that there's tough odds, and that's a cute story. No, it's actually Jesus' strategy. It's actually the strategy. Jesus does not come with a hammer or the sword, but he comes and describes himself as a seed. And in John chapter 12, verse 24, it says this, that unless a seed falls into the ground and what? Dies, it will not bear fruit. Now, what in the world could that be talking about? Jesus comes and said, I am the seed. I am the king of the kingdom, establishes his roots of his kingdom here by becoming small, by being crushed on a cross and being hidden in a grave. But the grave could not contain him, could it? It started small and its work was done in hiding. But out of that hiding came the resurrection where death was exploded from the inside out. Death could not hold him. Hell could not claim him. That's the gospel of the kingdom. And that's why it's impossible. An old British preacher named G. Campbell Morgan tells of being in Italy when he's going on the tour of an old graveyard. And see, see, there was an astonishing thing at this old graveyard. There was a 400-pound marble slab that had been put over one of the graves. But apparently, in the process of covering over the grave, an acorn seed had gotten inside. And over a very, very, very long time, that seed grew up into a large oak tree that split that marble in two, and now in the middle of this grave is a massive tree. They take tours of it. This is an illustration, a metaphor, that the kingdom, it is unstoppable, and perhaps it's as strongest when it appears weakest. You know, when Chairman Mao, and they finally, when the communists took over in China, and they began to take out all of their enemies 
Christians were murdered and slaughtered at an astounding rate. Finally, Mao decided that he, this didn't seem to be working all that much, and so he decided to take a different tact. He, under, he noticed that Christians like to be together. And so he decided that what he would do is he would take the Christians that were left after all of his slaughtering and murdering of them and sending them off to camps, and he would scatter them all over China. <laughs> He would separate them because he thought, if I separate them, they won't have much power, and then they'll die alone and ashamed. But then he made things worse. He decided he'd also give them really shameful jobs, like going house to house to pick up people's garbage. (laughs) And what has happened over the course? These were enormous snakes. One scholar actually said this, and Christy Wilson said, the Communist Party is the greatest mission-sending agency of the 20th century. Now there are over 100 million Christians in China, and guess who's dead? It ain't the kingdom of God. The kingdom cannot be stopped. The gospel of the kingdom is winning, and it may not look so like so here in America. Perhaps God is pruning us for something better than political power, and maybe he wants kingdom influence instead. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that grows to an imposing side. And so let me ask you this. Does your ministry, does it feel like it's surrounded Does your life feel like it's surrounded by the evil one? Does your life and your ministry feel small? Like nobody nobody sees it or appreciates it? Are you struggling to see fruitfulness? Does it appear as you look at the American church that we're being overwhelmed by evil and internal weakness? Remember this, that the kingdom of God is something that takes root inside of you as well. And it will bear its fruit. It is an unstoppable power. We close with this. There's an Olympian. His name is Leo Manzano. He's a a Mexican long-distance runner who ran in the 2012 Olympics, the 1500 meter. He's a wee man. He's only 5'5", but according to one doctor, he has the heart of a seven-foot man. One doctor, Ed Coyle, the director of the Human Performance Laboratory, said that Leo Manzano consumes 82.2 milliliters of oxygen per kilogram of body weight. The doctor said this, I know of on the record of only 10 humans in history that have been able to do that. They call Leo, they say about Leo that he is a Ferrari engine in a pinto body. (laughs) Well, brothers and sisters, that's the kingdom of God. It's a Ferrari engine and a Pinto body. Want to prove it to you? Just look around. We're a parking lot of Pintos. And yet the kingdom of God and its Ferrari engine resides in you. The infinitely powerful is at work in us. The unimpressively small, the peerlessly potent is at work in you and me. The profoundly flawed. May the kingdom of God come, and may those who have ears to hear, may they hear. Let's pray and go to the table together. Those who are serving communion can come forward and grab your seats. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you We thank you that you came to this world in a a way that we as weak people can totally understand. We, We know weakness. We know hiddenness. We know smallness.
Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd forgive us by always trying to chihuahua up, trying to be bigger and bolder than we really are, and it's not simply acknowledging that we are weak, but you are great. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that we would let go of our, our clinging to the world's power systems and instead cling to the small things, the simple ways and the old paths of word and prayer and sacrament done day in and day out in the quiet places of this world, in the broken places of this world. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that you would send this church and the members of this church into hiding May, you, may we find our broken spot, our dark place in this world to which we might be surrounded and we might be small and we might have to look at ourselves and say, I don't have what it takes. So spirit of the living God and your power, would you fall f- fresh on me? Oh Lord, we thank you for the truth and in our weakness, your grace is sufficient. When I am weak, you are strong. When we are weak, you are strong and we thank you that in the days when it just feels like we're being crushed, that we can at least look up and we can look at the promise that one day you will come and you will make all things new, that your kingdom will come to bear in this place. It's with that in mind we say, Jesus, thank you. It's in his name we pray, amen.